0: Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is August 24th. I am Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chad patel hey, Hi, ben. ben. How's it going? Good.
1: Good. So, can you say what your role is here at ThoughtBot? I'm the CEO and founder of ThoughtBot.
0: Okay, so you could technically fire me during this podcast?
1: Uh, technically, but uh, let's just make sure that doesn't happen. Okay.
0: I'll be careful with the questions. <laughs> So as the CEO, how large is the list of things that you do? Like a boss, (laughs) um,
1: the list is, uh, the list is long. Um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that, um, I think makes Sopot a little bit different is the fact that we run very lean. So I do a lot of stuff. Uh, I do all the HR stuff, uh, with help from others, but a lot of that stuff I do, um, as well as just like normal CEO stuff. Then I'm also a developer, so I spend a couple of days a week developing. Okay,
0: cool. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, like, what percentage of your time you're actually
1: spending writing code these days? So, yeah, a couple of days a week, two to three days a week. So, up until about a couple uh, two weeks ago, I was actively billing two days a week on client project. Um, and then I came off of that to work on some of our own internal stuff. So, mm. I automated our, our hiring and new account creation process. So working on internal stuff like trajectory and workshops and stuff like that is a little bit easier because my schedule is pretty hectic Um, and like I might have to do a phone call or something like that. So that can be a little tough on client projects, but it works pretty well for internal stuff. Right.
0: I remember that was actually one of the things that struck me uh, when I came to interview here. Actually, I was about to meet with you and you're like, give me one second. I just need to get this cucumber scenario passing. (laughs) And like that, I mean, that honestly made a big impression on me. Yes, yeah. because I think in a company when you get uh management, the farther away management is from what you actually do, like the the less the, the more danger that presents.
1: Right, is exactly what we don't want. So all of the founders of ThoughtBot are we ha we are computer programmers, we have CS stickeries, um, we don't have salespeople, we don't have project managers. Everyone who works at ThoughtBot, with the exception of Shauna, our office manager is a designer or a developer, and that's really important to the way that we work. I think it's also really important to preserving the way that we work. So, mm-hmm. like, the sales people will never get in charge of ThoughtBot. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, that, and
0: that initial impression, that initial good impression proved to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I felt like, you know, we're a company that's very willing to change policies and change things that are not working. And I think it's because you're sort of very much on the front lines. You can see when that stuff isn't working or when it's a, a good idea is good and when a bad idea is bad.
1: Right. But also, I, I'm an employee here too. So if, like, one of my primary motivating factors is, like, I have no ulterior motive except creating a place which is enjoyable for me to work as a developer, mm. then I, we're very much going to be aligned on almost everything that we do. Yep. Um, and that's very... Comfortable for me Like that makes me happy Yeah Has it been tough To maintain that As we've grown
0: Has there be- been more Temptation to be Pulled out of that Like developer role Or something um,
1: n- No I, I, I don't I think that it Hasn't been tough To maintain it I think if anything It's been too easy To fall into that role it, It's too It's you know That's my comfort zone Sitting in front Of a computer not talking to someone, not talking to someone, not taking that hard phone call or doing that thing, which you're not sure is going to pan out. And instead just sitting there and coding, right. um, that's the easy choice, uh, pushing back from the desk and working on, you know, something, something for the business is sometimes the harder choice. So if anything, it's been harder to go the other way. Huh? That's interesting. So what what are your favorite parts of the, of the job then? I think it's changed over time. You know, over time, I've become more comfortable with the idea that I'm a CEO of a relatively successful company, and that means I need to do CEO stuff, Um, like mm gold-plated limousines, (laughs) crystal. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm. I think, you know providing vision and motivation to the team is something that I haven't necessarily been historically very good at Mm. and really need to do a better job uh, on. And, and I've become more okay with realizing like, that's my job. Like, that's what I need to do. Mm. And there's a whole host of sort of related things to that from, you know, I, I don't enjoy doing math. Like I did math because I was sort of good at school, but not good at math. Mm. Um, which I think is a little unusual for computer science program, uh, degree people, but yeah, I don't enjoy math. Um, so like all the financial stuff that we have to do as a company, particularly as we grow is an area where I, I didn't purposefully avoid it, but just, we, we got by without doing it at the level that we really need to do it. Mm. And so over the past, uh, going into this year and over the past six months, I've gotten much more comfortable with the concept that like. I need to be doing that stuff. It's my job, and we've hired an outsourced CFO to help me with that because I just don't know what goes into it, and he does a lot of a lot of the work. But like, that's been really important turning point. I think becoming more okay with the things that I I really need to be doing as CEO.
0: Yeah, has has that uh, decision to bring in an outside CFO been good? Are you happy
1: with that? Yeah, it's been great, and uh, it t- <laughs> it turns out that when you actually set goals it makes it easier to hit them. Uh, So, you know, that's something that we've learned a lot of lessons over the course of running ThoughtBot and and growing ThoughtBot. And that's one that is one of the most recent lessons that I've learned personally is like when you actually set a goal and work towards it, you, it's easier to hit it. Uh, we're, we're more successful now because we're setting goals, Consciously, mm-hmm. as opposed to just um, oh my god, uh, it's TDD for
0: business, right? <laughs> right? did you, you have to have the failing test first? Wow,
1: I hadn't even I haven't even thought
0: of that. That just came to me. Yeah, bold. Right. Yeah, it's like because until you the process of actually specifying the goal forces you to state something that is measurable. That's like, right. That you can actually check off right
1: and make sure you put in to place the systems for measuring it right, and that process of of actually thinking about the system and putting in place measurement for it makes you do a better job with it. Yeah, totally. So, for example, at the beginning of this year, we set out specific hiring goals for the year, and um, they were more people than we had ever hired in in a year before, Um, and we hit those no problem. Like we hit it in the first six months of the year, Mm -hmm. less than the first six months because we focused we focused on it by by saying hey this is a goal for 2012 we focused on it and we and we hit it
0: hmm. so that the that hiring process is part of sort of a general expansion that we're going under right now right mm-hmm. can you talk well, about that well the actual
1: original goal was just going into the year being like uh to be honest we lost a couple of really great people last year mm-hmm. and um and we wanted to replace them um, so we went into the year just based on that. And then throughout the course of working on the financials and doing some soul searching about what we wanted out of ThoughtBot and what we wanted it to become, we then put in place even more aggressive hiring goals. Mm. So I remember that sort of for the long time,
0: the idea was keep ThoughtBot in one place and mm-hmm. around, you know, 20-ish, 25 people. And the vision has kind of shifted from there. Yeah. Um, can you go into
1: some of that? Are we talking yeah. about all this? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so that was that was precisely the goal, and I guess it, it goes back to that that comfort zone. So I was me and the rest of the leadership team uh, were very concerned about what big companies are. Um, you know, we we are totally geared towards being the best at what we do, or realizing we're not and getting there. And continually working on self-improvement. And um, we just have this feeling that big companies, and when I say big company, I mean like 50 people. I don't mean... <laughs> 50,000. <000. laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, certainly, the, I think it's a problem in 50,000. But even like 50-person companies, you don't know everybody. You don't talk to people on a daily basis. Mediocrity, I think, finds its its way into the organization. and um, And you're just less good. And... Also, certain things get entrenched, so we're very much into changing things for the better. And I think that if you, in a large organization, it's way too easy to say, "Well, this is the way it's always been. Uh, There's nothing I can do to change it. Like, how am I going to change what 50 people do?" Mm -hmm. Um, And that is like, this is totally against my nature. It's against everything I stand for. Yeah. And so we were, you know, we were scared that that would happen if we grew, and because like I said before, my primary motivation is to build a place which is enjoyable for me to work. I didn't have a motive. I didn't, there was nothing motivating me to be like, yeah, we're going to grow to 50, a hundred people because that wasn't the kind of company that I wanted to work at. Mm. And so I wasn't at all comfortable with us becoming that because I didn't, I didn't want it. Um, so as we, uh, over the last two years, we were basically, uh, in 2010, we hit 20 people and, That number of 25 had come from sort of advice I had gotten and things I had read that said, like, at 25, the dynamic changes, team changes, communication changes. That's when people don't all know each other, those kinds of things. And we actually started to have those problems when we hit 20 for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so we definitely, very consciously, I put the brakes on our growth at that point in terms of headcount. And, um we started to not hire people um, because we didn't want to grow. Um, we were very, we were still successful, but we weren't actively growing the headcount of sure. people. And so that meant that in 2010, 2011, we didn't grow. So we had two years of basically static and growth for companies. Surprise, surprise means revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can do things to increase revenue. You can increase your rates. Um, and, but you can't do more work as a consulting company. You can't do more work without hiring more people. Mm-hmm. And so I've been at this for nine years. So coming into this year, looking at a scenario where I've been doing this for nine years was starting to think about what, what <laughs> and I'd been doing this for nine years, got into a situation where, uh, we had just had two years of essentially being static like what was my next 10 years going to look like? And coming up on a decade, really starting to think about that. Yeah. What was my next 10 years going to look look like? And through that process of walking through that and coming to that understanding that I had been letting the fear of what I didn't want to become totally stop us from becoming what we really needed to become. Mm. Um, and what I mean by what we really needed to become uh, that's driven, by, what I mean by that is, like, we're good at what we do, and by not working on all the things we can work on, by not uh, having the kinds of uh, kind of company that could hire people, like, hey, you're really good at what you do, you work in all the same ways that we do, we want you as part of this organization. Uh, and honestly, even if it means you can't necessarily move to Boston and work with us, like, So we had a really great place that we love to work that was, so why would we not try to share that with with people? We had a really good process for having successful projects and helping startups. Mm. So why would we not try to bring that to everybody? Mm -hmm. Um, And instead of being afraid of what we might become, instead just flipping it around and saying, what are the things that are really important to us Mm -hmm. about the way that we work and about the kind of company we wanna have? and let's figure out how to be successful within those parameters as opposed to let's figure out how to just always stay the same within those parameters. Mm. And so in the same way that I want someone, if, like, stand-up isn't working for them, like, suggest a different way of doing stand-up or a iteration isn't working for them in the weekly retrospective to talk about why something could be better, like, I I changed or, or realized that, like, we were not becoming better at what we we weren't changing and we weren't accelerating our our rate of change Mm -hmm. we were actually decreasing our rate of change Hmm. and so to not let that fear drive those decisions but instead let the fear drive the growth and figure out okay these are the things i really need to work to protect yeah how can i do it Okay, so um, so what are the specific plans?
0: We're we're doing San Francisco, and can you, can you talk about the what actually is going to happen? Or
1: yeah, um, so we are we opened San Francisco. First people started at the beginning of July. Mm-hmm. We have uh, we have five people there now. Um, Dan Croak is moving there, and he's going to run it. Mm-hmm. And Dan's a shareholder in Thoughtbot. He's been here five years. Um, Mike Burns is moving to, who has been here almost five years, is moving to Stockholm, and, and he wanted to move there. And uh, we, we sort of surprised him when we said, okay, uh, let's do that, and let's start expanding into Europe as yeah. well. So we're opening an office in Europe, and Stockholm will be the base from, uh, for us to service all of Europe at first, but who knows where we'll go from there. Mm. And then if that goes well, we'll continue to expand how do you
0: see, do you think your role will change as all this happens? If suddenly we're up twice the size or three times
1: the size as we were a year ago? I think my role will change. And one of the reasons why I know that this is the right course of action is that I'm excited about the change. Mm, yeah. And every time I had thought through what this would be like, um, I was not excited about it. Hmm. And so that's why I know that what we're doing now is the right thing for me and hopefully the the company along with it um because i'm excited about it and Mm. and and people are excited about it you know to be honest i i fretted a lot over announcing the expansion to san francisco Mm. and that was greeted by the company as something that was really welcome Mm. um and you, so, you fretted over
0: announcing it to us? Yeah, internally? because
1: it represented a fundamental shift in everything that I had said to everybody yeah. <laughs> all along the way. Right, um, And so, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was explained appropriately and that people were happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing when we, you know, decided, OK, it's not just San Francisco. We're going to continue doing that and 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 consciously growing. Hmm. Um, I really want to make sure that everyone understands why we're doing that and that, is, and that they're excited about it. Hmm. And the fact that people are excited about it is, um, is ammunition to, to keep on going. Hmm. Is
0: this just an excuse for you to make fun trips to Stockholm and out to the <laughs> West coast? And- That's a,
1: a great question. Actually, it's an excuse not to like uh, the, We'll be successful. Part of the, the benchmark for, growing and being successful is not traveling. So if we can put together this organization that works really effectively with these offices and everyone's not traveling, Hmm. um, then we'll be, that'll be really successful in my mind.
0: So that you want them to be sort of self-sufficient, not having to like bring people from Boston to somewhere to get something done.
1: Yeah. And I think that people from Boston and San Francisco will collaborate, but there's a way to do that over the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and have a cohesive team. Um, But the people in San Francisco will work on San Francisco projects with San Francisco and West Coast clients. The people in Boston will work on Boston-based projects. Mm. And there should be no need for people to travel outside of, hey, I'd really like to go work in Boston for a week or a month or three months and work with that team there on a project there. Um, You know, that was part of part of the decision-making process in deciding that there was a need for us to grow as well was that there are a lot of developers working at really bad companies, particularly consulting companies. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of bad consulting companies. And so even the really good ones tend to be fairly bad in terms of, um, having people who aren't very good, uh, learning on the job, and traveling an enormous amount of the time to do it. Mm. Um, And they're billing their clients a lot of money. And, um, so I'd like to sort of break that mold. And instead of having this, this far flung consulting company where everyone's traveling a whole bunch of the time, instead have really small, tight, close knit groups of people working together to build something great. Uh, and, um, in a in a at the same level, like one level up, a really close knit organization. Hmm. So, if if phase
0: one is uh, new uh, offices, sort of that are that are remote from each other, does this mean that phase two may include like remote people that are not not anywhere in particular? You,
1: you know, you never you never know. One of the things that I've learned <laughs> is not to say never. Yeah, but the team. Has spoken loud and clear in terms of that, mm-hmm. and so for the kinds of work we do, I mean, we have clients sitting in our office with us. We give them a desk; um, they're working with the designer and the developers right alongside of them, mm-hmm. the, and that's the you know. Or or if they're, if they're not in our office, then we're in their office a couple of days a week, mm-hmm. like that dynamic. And then the kinds of projects we work on, like very early stage. Um, startups working from scratch. It, we just enjoy. The majority of the team enjoys working together in the same spot more, and so I think that the, what we're doing now is a nice balance between completely remote people and um, and um, not having any other locations. Yeah. So, and honestly, you know, the big draw has been places like San Francisco. So, people wanting to move to San Francisco or moving to San Francisco and then not really having it work out working remotely has been the biggest factor why we've lost people over the years. Right. So, even just adding San Francisco is going to be a big. Um, uh, Fix to that problem
0: Sure, because it's kind of a magnet for, for developers anyway
1: Yeah, and there's been a lot of developers Who live in San Francisco Who haven't wanted to And who we would otherwise hire But who haven't wanted to relocate to Boston Sure, so sometimes you gotta, gotta go to them Right Yeah. And then other offices like in Europe There's other advantages to that too Like the visa system in the US We've managed to navigate that And we've brought people here mm-hmm. on visa But for example, there's there's at least one person who we would hire now, who we can't hire, because uh, we don't. He, he would not, you know, he wouldn't work remotely. But, you know, he he needs to be here with the team, but um, we can't get a visa for him because the H one B cap is done for the year, mm. and that means that he would not be able. If we even if we did get a visa for him next year, it means he would not be in the U S. until October of next year. Yikes. And so it's just way too long. Um, and for the record, we actually do allow people to work remotely. So when we hire them and they live remotely, we allow them to work remotely until we can get them here. Okay. So, like, you know, we hired Prem um, in Thailand and he worked remotely for, I think, three or four months until his visa came through. And he moved here in October when when the visa came through. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do allow that. But like a year of that is just way too much. Um, in our mind sure so uh having presence in like the eu actually has a completely different visa system and it's totally possible for someone like that to uh, go and work with the eu office with very minimal overhead in terms of visas and then actually there they could potentially even stage so they stage there They, they camp out there for eight months working with the team there um getting integrated in the company and and helping out that team And then when their visa comes through, they come to Boston or San Francisco Mm -hmm. office, which, you know, most people who are in that situation, they want to get to the U.S. That is that's one of their motivations. Yeah. Um, And so this would be an avenue for doing that. Hmm. Can I take you into uh, philosophy mode for a little bit? Yes. So uh,
0: what have been the biggest mistakes that you feel you've made while running the company?
1: Oh, that's that's a that's a great question um so early on the the biggest mistake that i made was starting the company that we all made really so the company started with five co-founders um five people i graduated from college with um that was the biggest first mistake that happened because it happened on day one yeah and so we were all equal partners so there's sort of there's an onion of mistakes here (laughs) we can keep on peeling back the layers and feeling the tears right uh that's yes so we uh i started the company with five co-founders all equal partners so from day one we needed to and no one had other jobs so from day one we needed to support five people Mm. that's a bad idea yeah um they were all people I went to school with and had and had worked on project teams with and done the sketch and improv groups. But I started the sketch group with some of them. I started the improv group at our school that they all belong to. Like in almost every situation where we worked together, we were friends, but in almost every situation, I was the one in charge. Uh-huh. And so going from a situation where I had been in charge to an equal partnership where we were all supposed to have responsibilities over the business, um, those expectations were not met. Mm-hmm. Those expectations were not matched. Like we would, they we just weren't comfortable ever working in a scenario where one, of, <laughs> it was not the dynamic we had in our in in our lives together. Yeah. Um. So you know, if if I did still want to like if I were to do it again, I probably wouldn't start the company with all of them. as as Mm -hmm. co-founders obviously it's hard because we didn't have the money we were completely bootstrapped we didn't have the money I couldn't have hired them as employees but try to i would have tried to find some other situation to make it work and in a case where we were co-founders i don't think like that we would be equal partners Mm -hmm. like it would have been better i think for us as a company to early on had a very explicit conversation about what expectations were and how we were going to split up the the equity in the company yeah um, so eventually three of them left um, so after about two and a half years of um, we were a full service IT company at that point so we did not only computer programming using Java PHP and Perl but we also did um, we set up computers we set up networks we helped secretaries with Microsoft Word mm. we did anything anyone would pay us to do with computers Uh, again, again, we were trying to support five people Mm -hmm. on day one. Were you called ThoughtBot at this point? We were. Yeah. That was our name from the beginning. Yeah. And, um, and so we were, you know, the fact that we built that company and were able to sort of support, you know, very me, like I think our, our first year, first full year in business, I made like $24,000 that year. Um, so you know we weren't <laughs> we weren't making a lot of money, yeah, and it was because it was being split five ways yeah um so we um you know we weren't very successful, so three of them decided, you know what I'm just gonna go get normal jobs mm-hmm. and uh and that worked out worked out for the best mm-hmm. um so so that is the biggest mistake that I think I've made. In terms of the actual company, I think that it, it, it worked out in the end, but we had a couple of lost years there in the beginning mm-hmm. that could have been very different for us. Um, but, of course, a lot of our success comes from switching to Rails in 2005, right when it hit 1.0. Yeah. And so I honestly don't know whether that would have happened had we j- had not just gone through that scenario because what happened was John and I decided to stick around and we went through a very conscious decision making process of okay, if we're deciding to stick around when we just had the opportunity to basically just walk away from this like the other other guys did. Yeah. Like, why did we do that and why is it important to us? And and one of the very the biggest things we started to do differently at that point was operating in the ways that we thought were important without very much compromise. So that's when we started to do test driven development. That's when when we were using rails and thought that it was really cool and and really enjoyed doing it mm-hmm. it wasn't just like hey we'll um you know we'll try to get some rails projects it was we're going to make an announcement that we are switching to ruby on rails and mm-hmm. we're going to contact all our customers and tell them w- you know we're no longer doing this and this php app or this java app that we built for you uh we'll continue to work on that um but we're going to wind down and find someone else for 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 you to work with, yeah, um, had we not just been through the experience of needing of deciding that we were really in this and it was wasn't worth doing if we weren't doing what we loved, we probably wouldn't have chosen rails, so that bad thing of starting that company with five people and needing to go through that decision making process in the end actually worked out pretty well for us, and I, I can honestly say i don't know that we would have been at that decision point with rails Mm. had we not and if we hadn't we'd probably be a lot less successful
0: yeah i mean that that was sort of the right bet at that time it turns out because rails just became huge and we were we're very much into the ground floor right so right
1: yeah as far as we know we were like the first consulting company to announce that we switched to rails Mm
0: -hmm. Turned out to be a good bet um so if a friend were starting a brand new web development company consultancy mm-hmm. tomorrow
1: what would you tell them um i would i would say um good luck <laughs> <laughs> um i would say that um at the same time as you really need to be careful about the partners you work with your, you know, your co-founders it is really helpful to have a co-founder mm. just make sure that you have had explicit conversations about what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, what your roles are going to be and don't automatically default to if you, if you have one other co-founder don't automatically default to a 50, 50 Mm. position because I can almost guarantee that that's not the way that the relationship is going to be. And that doesn't just come from my experience. Mm -hmm. I've sort of told this story to uh, other people at conferences and other events. And they're all, you know, they all nod their heads and say, I had a similar situation, or that's the way it is, and 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 so as as congenial as people like to be, uh, it really behooves everyone involved to be like, no, I'm I'm going to be CEO, and I'm going to bring this to the table, and and, and this is what you're going to bring, and and we shouldn't split split the company equally.
0: Yeah. I think I've read Paul Graham or somebody similar recommending that we have two people like someone's got to have 51%. Mm-hmm. So that would just be, you know, if you have an argument and you can't agree, you got to have someone that can just be like, no, this is the way it's going to be. Right. So you don't get stuck there.
1: Right. And I've been very fortunate in that there haven't been arguments. There haven't really been disagreements. That hasn't been the problem. Mm. Um, but I just, you know, and and the 50-50, like uh, my example was an extreme where we had five people with 20% each. Um, that I would really recommend against. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sounds a little dangerous. Um, so
0: if you, oh, and then I would oh, say yeah,
1: and then and then I would also say to that person, have a principled opinion about stuff. Like, you know, we didn't really become successful until we figured out what was important to us, and then went after it. Mm. And we got that brought us to the point where we got. And then we went through that process again just just recently, where we said, you know, ins- like instead of letting those be limits, let them be drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where is that? Was that was the case? Mm.
0: Hmm. So, if you were forced to sell the company tomorrow, what would you do?
1: I would go on a vacation. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've had an actual vacation. Oh man. Um you know we have a limited PTO. I know we do. <laughs> As um, an employee you're eligible for that. No, I, I know. No, I I just I really love what I do and um so I do I do I'm sort of joking. I, I do I do take time off. Mm-hmm. Um it tends to be like in short um bursts, extensions of conferences, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. But um no, I I I have a I have a family and I would I would take a significant amount of time off just to to be with them and uh, and and do that. So that would be the first thing I would do, mm. and then after that, I would I would um, start writing code. Like you know that that is what I do. So you know I wouldn't do anything necessarily different. I can almost guarantee that I wouldn't do consulting, mm. and not because I don't like it, but just because I've sort of done that. So, if I was in a situation where I sold sold the company and presumably it would be a successful sale, like I'd be happy about it right yeah, um, then I would probably you know join a, another startup uh, doing a product or try to come up with one on my own mm. and again, it's not because I don't like what I do, it's just that I've been doing it for nine years, so I think it would be time to try something different yeah so y- you have young children now yeah, a three and a half year old and a one and a half year which one's your favorite? <laughs> they're both uh, unique in every way. Okay, because
0: <laughs> they're going to hear this eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so you just you just mentioned uh, something I wanted to ask you about, which was like spending time with your family. If if you did sell a company, like how do you feel about your work life
1: balance? Like, do you wish you could change that? Or no, I I, I don't wish I can change. Uh, everything's actually really great. Um, so I come in. We've actually recently changed my schedule a little bit because my wife went back to work after being out of uh, uh, off of work for the first year of my daughter's life. So she went back to work. So I bring the kids to school uh, in the mornings on the mornings that they go to school, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I I leave at five o'clock every day to go home and have dinner with them. Mm. Um, and uh, the only the, the hardest thing is is we wanted to live in a place with a yard. And all that stuff. So I have a 45-minute commute on the train. But other than that, um, everything's great. And even that is not so bad. Yeah. Cool. So I asked
0: you about biggest mistakes that you made yeah. in, in the past. Uh, is one of them that you didn't capitalize the T in Thop on?
1: Oh, you son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm, I'm all for it. It's just like everyone <laughs> messes this up. I can't believe how often we fight this battle with the world.
1: I know. Recently, I've stopped correcting people. And I, honestly, it's because I've just given up. Yeah. So I, I've succumbed to the idea. But that's not. So I've become more okay with a capital T. But the capital T and a capital B. Oh, man. I just. I can't even. I can't. Words <laughs> cannot begin to describe the amount of fire that I want to rain down on that webpage when I see it. When is- someone is. Written something about us or whatever, and has the capitalization all wrong.
0: Is that the f- the surest way to not get hired? Uh, <laughs> y- yes, yes, it d- definitely is. Good to know. <laughs> we should put that in the Apprentice IO podcast as well. Just no, know the I, you know, know. Uh,
1: all sort of all joking aside, not to get super serious on that topic, but like, it's attention to de- it's like it's a detail that we're sort of anal about, and mm-hmm. I I think it's a good example of. A lot of people say like wow. Like I, I meet people at conferences and they're like, wow, you guys have such good marketing and all that stuff. And I'm actually, I think we're not that great at marketing. I think it's a lot of people just don't give it the time and attention that it deserves. Mm. So they're not actually investing it, but like attention to detail is really important and, and having sort of opinions about the way things should be, even if they're relatively arbitrary, <laughs> like the capitalization <laughs> of your company name. Yeah. Like think of what's important to you and stick by it. And like, It just so happens that, for whatever reason, we ended up with an all-lowercase name. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's the way it should be. Right. Yeah. um, That being – but, like, so – but I've been worn down on that over time. Sure.
0: Cool. Uh, So, we have some questions that people sent in. Uh, The first one is from uh, Ryan L. It says, Hi, ThoughtBot. I saw your invitation on Twitter. I run a creative agency near Seattle. We hit our five year mark last fall and are in the process of incorporating and updating our boilerplate and such. The company began as just me, smart not having four other founders. Uh, but now have a copywriter on retainer and a subcontract pretty regularly with two trusted devs as necessary. Please talk a little bit about how your experience transitioning into a larger firm, how you balance client and internal projects, and what you have found to be the best practice in bidding estimating new client work.
1: Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of yeah, a lot stuff in there. in there. I'll uh I'll Let's talk first about the first part of that, which is, um, transitioning from smaller firm to a larger firm. Mm -hmm. And, um, honestly, like we went from, so in 2005, we switched to rails right at the end of the, at the end of the year, 2006, we went from four to eight people in 2007, we went from eight to 16. Um, and so we grew, you know, we doubled, uh, over the course of a couple of years, um, C- consecutively, but we weren't growing to crazy numbers like mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things when you have like ten thousand hundred thousand person consulting companies that's mm-hmm. relatively small but um but to us at the time, it seemed like crazy growth um and 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 it's important it was important to us at the time that everyone be employees that everyone understands what thought about is about and be working for it so the only person we've ever really had who worked for us um, a lot and was a contractor was back when we were doing technical support, we hired um, a contractor. Mm. One of the first things we did when we became the sort of Thoughtbot 2.0, when it became just John and I, and we went out and said what was important to us was to do things right and part of what we thought doing things right was, was we became a corporation instead of like a partnership. Mm -hmm. And we, um, we started, um, getting payroll and we, we actually hired that person as an employee. So I just have the opinion that, um, you know, in order to build the kind of company that people want to work at, they should work there. And so we generally don't subcontract. Um, and, uh, and so I encourage people to really think about how to bring people on to your company, not as subcontractors, um, so that you're all working together on something. And mm-hmm. I generally don't mean that gives means get them to work for less money and give them stock. I think it means um, you know put together an organization that can support people mm-hmm. and work extra if you need to uh, before you can hire them. So... When you're, you know, working and turning away more work than you can possibly do, then you hire, hire somebody to do it. Mm. Um, We generally have not done a more traditional route of, okay, you know, I have some extra work. I'm going to hire a contractor for a couple hours a week. We just, we just haven't done that. And that is a matter of opinion, but it's one that's worked pretty well for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So the other thing is, is let the work justify the growth. So we've all, we're completely bootstrapped. We've been sustainable. So, and one of the ways we do done that is do the jobs we ask others to do before we, we give them up ourselves. So Mm -hmm. like, that's part of why I do the HR stuff and, and all that stuff. Like rather than hire someone who we might not have enough work for, um, do the job myself, learn what goes into it. And then, and thirty-seven signals has also been an advocate of, of doing that, but really just letting the work just, justify it. So really, you know, we really resisted growing uh, significantly until the work was just coming out our ears, mm-hmm. um, and be like, yes, now now we're ready. Now we're ready to add somebody. Cool. So there's there's another good part of this question I think, which is balancing client and
0: internal projects.
1: Yeah. So the way we've done this has changed quite a bit over the years. So Back in 2006 um, through 2008, um, a lot of that was when we released a lot of our most popular open source, like Paperclip, Shuda. Um, I think even Factory Girl, maybe that was a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, most of those things came from not direct extractions from client work, but patterns and things we were seeing, and then we specifically said. Okay, we have an idea for this thing. Let's set aside some time and make the initial version of it. And that time could have been as simple as on the plane to RailsConf, or as complex as it was for HopToad. We specifically said, "Okay, Tamer, like we have this idea for HopToad. Um, w- you know, how long do we think it's going to take to put together the first version to get to the MVP of what would be usable for us?" okay, we're not going to book you for two weeks. You're going to spend two weeks building this. Mm. Um, So it was very explicit time where we said, we have this idea, we have this thing, we're going to work on it. And then beyond that, it was just like during downtime, people worked on it. Um, Over the past couple of years, we've transitioned to what we do now, which is one day of work. we, We only work on client work four days a week. We work one day a week on our own internal stuff. We call it investment time. And so people work on anything from open source to our own products Mm -hmm. um, or even just um, reading a book. Mm -hmm. And so we've it's still very explicit, but it's it's much more structured as in a constant pressure being applied all the time Mm -hmm. now. And, um, you know. I can't say that one way is better than the other. I I, I think that we're just as productive and producing as much good stuff now as we were then. Mm. So it just one way works better for us now than the other way uh, did. So we've just transitioned to it over time. But but what I would recommend to people is be explicit about what you're doing. Like, you know, don't just let it be like, oh, I'll work on that when I get to it or I'll do this when when there's time. There is never time. There's just never time. And so another thing people say to us when I talk, talk to them at conferences is like, wow, you guys do so much stuff. And they're, they're really, when we were only 16, they were really surprised um, that we would do. I, I, one, one year I wrote a blog post at the end of the year like outlining everything we had accomplished for the year and being like, we've done this with, I forget what the team was at the point, like 10 people or something like that. And like that was really remarkable. But it's just because we spent, like you realize you have to spend the money to do that it comes down to money like i could say time or whatever but yeah. it is the money so like you take for example we spend one day a week everybody works on that so we have a company with 24 people now if we just had 15 people um one day a week from everyone would be three full time people worth of time a week that we are basically paying mm-hmm. uh, and if everyone was working on open source it'd be entirely on open source and the way you justify that as a, as a business owner is, well, first of all, it's easy because we're, we're developers and designers and we're driven by that. So we would do open source anyway. So it's easy to justify in that regard. But from a business perspective, we look at that as largely a marketing expense. The majority totally. of people get in touch with us because they're using our stuff mm-hmm. and they see our work and they say that it's really good. And so it, from what I've been told and, and, and what I've read spending 15% or 10 to 15% for a consulting company on marketing Mm. is of of your revenue is, you know, reasonable. Yeah. Or sorry, of your like 10 to 15% of your costs. Sorry, not of your revenue, Mm -hmm. 10 to 15% of your costs going to a marketing expense is totally reasonable. Right. And so that's what we're doing. And the companies that say, Oh, like we just aren't able to produce the kinds of things that, that you guys are producing. It's most likely because you're not actually spending the time and the money and the effort to actually accomplish it. Yeah. Same thing that I said for, like, the, the marketing stuff we do and, and, and all that stuff. It's just that we try. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and I would add with the open source stuff, it's not, it's not just marketing in the sense that it gets us new clients, but I think it gets us new employees as well. Right. It's yeah. a huge pull in terms of recruiting. Right. Right, And then because it's extracted from – because they're tools that we use in our day-to-day jobs, it also makes us faster as we do it. Right, So it, we're, there's a lot of benefits to that one yeah. in particular. Cool. Uh, one more question. Uh, this is from Florent Guillot. He says, I'm a French freelance Rails web developer based in Lima, Peru, uh, looking for U.S. contracts. Um, he's very interested to know if asking for $60 U.S. per hour is reasonable or completely under the market rate. I assume it's impossible for you to give an answer as you don't my, know my abilities, but I asked just in case there's an obvious answer.
1: Yeah. Um, this is a tricky question hmm. because you know, you're worth what people are willing to pay you. So um, I would say, you know, $60 is a reasonable rate um, based on what I know. It's lower than like us based contractors. Mm-hmm. Like, A a U.S.-based contractor with rails experience who lives in a non-major city is probably going to be billing at $65 an hour, maybe $70 an hour from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is mostly like we don't hire these people, but it's mostly like I went to a less money conference. And some people who came away with the understanding that they were charging a lot less than other people, uh, that's what they were billing. Mm -hmm. So that's I would say probably at the low end of what people in, in the US are paying. So if you're at that, you're probably at that low end and if that's a really good rate for you, then more power to you. But again, I would come back to like you're worth whatever you're worth. Um so um keep on like just keep on increasing the rate and see what you can get. Sure. Totally. But also, you know, and maybe this is just my style like I tell people like when they're worth what, you know, like, so he's totally right. Like, I can't totally be the judge of that without knowing and having worked with him and all that stuff. But I have the opinion, um, of like, if I was working with him and I would say, what's your, what's your rate? And I would expect an answer. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like, uh, oh, you know, him and hawing about the, about the rate. I would expect an answer. And I'd be like, okay, great, and there wouldn't be any negotiation really, as long as the rate wasn't ridiculous. Yeah, um, and if it was, I probably would just stop the conversation right there. Like, so, so, v- v- I, I take people at their word for what they need to make and what they think that they're worth. Mm-hmm. And but then, and then, once we work together, we have a conversation about whether that's accurate or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm not a I'm not afraid to say that it's not. And I'm also not afraid to say like you're worth more. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's pay you more. (laughs) And again, we don't, we don't work with contractors that often, but that's how I've operated in those dealings and just in general. Mm -hmm. Sounds fair. Uh, So there are two events that I want to mention
0: uh, where ThoughtBot people will be presenting a conference. The first is me. Uh, I'm going to be talking at uh, Rocky Mountain Ruby in Boulder, Colorado, September 19th through 22nd. And my talk I'm doing is called Refactoring from Good to Great with a whole bunch of vimming and live coding. And also Mike Burns is presenting at Frozen Rails in Helsinki, Finland, September 20th and 21st. And his talk is When Not to Use Object-Oriented Techniques, which is sure to upset a lot of people, which is excellent. So I think that's actually all I have. Normally, this is the part where I'll ask the guest if they want to make a plug for something. but uh, <laughs> This whole oh. thing has been a plug me? <laughs> exactly. Mean. Go Thoughtbot! Yeah! Uh, you should consider <laughs> us for your next project. And <laughs> coast to coast. Uh, so, so since you don't have anything to plug, do you want to share your uh, your Twitter handle in case people want to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I'm cpytel on uh, Twitter and
0: app.net. Oh, my. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not aware. I'm not sure where you're going with that. Uh, so, uh, often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email that question to infothoughtbot.com or tweet to us at, at Thoughtbot. Today's podcast was recorded by Edward Lovell and produced by Chad Pytel. Uh, so, I think that actually uh, wraps things up. Uh, thanks very much for coming by and talking. Thanks, Ben.